Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Uh, we've been working through Matthew chapter 7. Some of you may be thinking, well, what's he going to Daniel for? Well, we're not rigid. We want to make sure we uh, follow as best we can as the Lord leads. And since we're talking about Thanksgiving this week, uh, we're going to kind of change it up a little bit and uh, try to learn some things about giving, being thankful. When I was a child, uh, I used to stay at my grandmother and my grandfather's house in Valley View, Pennsylvania. That's right, Valley View, Pennsylvania. Amish country, if you're familiar with Pennsylvania. And I remember as a little guy, uh, when I would stay with my grandparents and spend the night, my grandmother, who was all of four foot eleven, with a spine of steel, she was one tough hombre, or hombre, whatever, whatever the female part of that is, she was tough, tough, tough. My grandfather was a coal miner, and they were tough, tough folks. But she would kneel down on the side of the bed and pray. I, I grew up in a, what I now know to be a very liberal Methodist church, then a Presbyterian church. I didn't grow up Southern Baptist. And that's all I really knew about prayer. She would take me to the side of the bed, and she, she said I would have to repeat after her. Now, see if you remember this prayer. Maybe your mom or dad or one of your grandparents prayed this with you. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. I mean, you think you're spiritual. You're praying a prayer. It didn't even dawn on me. Several years ago, I heard a preacher preaching on that. What are we teaching our children to pray that for? We're scaring them to death. If I should die before I wake. These little kids are praying and it's going to scare them. Have you ever been scared in the middle of the night? I, I talk to people still to this day that they tell me I, I can't sleep at night. My mind never turns off or I have bad dreams. Well, today we're going to talk about a dream. Now, let me tell you what the Bible says are our two biggest problems. What do you think are your two biggest problems right now? Immediately, circumstantial stuff will pop up into your mind. Okay, marriage, kids, money, job, something that you're walking through. But the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, Verse 21, what our two biggest problems are. All of humanity. This means everybody you see has the same two big problems. Let me read the verse for you. Although they knew God, here's number one, they neither glorified him as God, number two, nor gave thanks to him. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, let me say these two verses, uh, these two problems that we all have. We don't glorify God and we don't give thanks to God. Those are our two biggest problems. Now, we think they're not the two biggest problems, but all problems stem from those two problems. Daniel teaches us how to give glory to God and give thanks to God, because we all need this lesson. We have folks that call themselves Christians that haven't glorified God or given thanks to God in years. Jesus healed 10 lepers. Nine of them didn't even come back to thank him. That's in all of us. We tend to look at other people and say, they didn't send me a thank you note. Wait a minute. It's in all of us. We don't give glory to God and we don't give thanks to God. So today it's the whole chapter, Daniel 2. You're going to have to bear with me as I read most of this right up front. But if you will, pull out your Bible in the pew and turn to Daniel chapter 2. It'll be a whole lot easier if you'll follow along. Okay? I'll kind of give some insight as we follow through. Daniel chapter 2 verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. 
So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll interpret it for you. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. In other words, I want you to interpret my dream, but I want you to tell me my dream too. First tell me my dream and then interpret it for me. And if you don't, uh, you're going to have a big, big destruction to come into your life. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once again, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you don't tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and uh, wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it. The astrologers, remember, this is a non-godly nation. That's why there are astrologers this high up in authority. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologers. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry. Underline that word angry and the next word furious. This made the king so angry and furious. You don't make good decisions when you're angry and furious, okay? That's the point. Minor point here. That he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Now, this is a political leader just saying, if you can't do this impossible thing, I want you to tell me my dream and interpret it, and if you don't, you're going to die. You think he would win many elections? I don't know anymore, but you think he would win any elections? I don't think so. Here's number one on your outline, okay? Point number one. Why should Christians give God glory and thanks? Now, pay attention to me here. Just follow me, if you will, for a few moments. We are given an impossible problem. See, by nature, you and I, we just like to coast along. As long as we have money and fun, you know, and no problems, we'll just ride that wave. We don't need God. We're just very content, very happy. So what God will do is he'll say, look, you are going through life without me. You're not giving me glory. You're not giving me thanks. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an impossible problem. I just didn't say a problem. An impossible problem. In other words, how how do you respond when an impossible problem comes into your life? How do you react? Do you panic? Do you get all anxious and nervous? Some folks are just, I'm going to fix this myself. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to fix it, fix it, fix it. I don't need anybody's help. I can do this myself. Some folks will ignore it. They'll just hope it goes away. Many folks will blame somebody else. It's the easiest thing. This is happening because of you. You. And we're all in one of those categories somewhere, aren't we? (laughs) Or we kind of flow in and out of them at different times. But we never stop to think that maybe God allowed this to come into our lives. The one thing you can say about Daniel is, well, the three things you can say about Daniel is he's confident in the Lord. He has convictions. We saw that in chapter one when he wouldn't eat the king's food. But he knew something that you and I need to understand. God is in control. It's the most peaceful doctrine in all of theology. 
that God is in control. But when an impossible problem comes into your life, you're thinking, God, why did you abandon me? Why don't you care about me? Why don't you love me? You seem to be blessing all these wicked people. I've served you all these years. We're kind of like the older brother and the prodigal son. I've served you all these years and nothing, nothing. Notice how Daniel, he teaches us a lesson here. Look at verse 14. When Arioch, the commander on the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him, watch this, with wisdom and tact. That's what a lot of Christians need, wisdom and tact. In other words, how we respond to people. We respond with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. So what Daniel's doing here is he, he's, he's using wisdom and tact. The first thing he does is he says, look, I've got to find out what the real problem is here. Many of us worry about things that are not the real problem. When we really need to stop and just take a moment and figure out what the real problem is. And that's what we see Daniel doing. And he didn't yell at authorities. He didn't rip the king. He treated them with respect. Respect goes a long way. If you're an authority, treat those under you with respect. If you're under authority, treat those above you with respect. Respect causes problems to be fixed. Anger doesn't. So Daniel, because he knows that God is in control, has wisdom and tact. He doesn't complain. He knows that God is in control. But we we tend to just kind of Make quick snap judgments when problems comes into our life. There was a professor in college, in a college ethics class, who presented his students with a problem. He said, a man had syphilis and his wife had tuberculosis. They had four children. One died and the other three are considered to have what's considered a terminal illness. And the mother's pregnant again. What should you do? Uh, with, after a much discussion, they didn't feel it was wise for her to have the baby. And the professor said, great, you just killed Beethoven. We don't see the end of the story when we're in the midst of a problem. God does, we don't. You see, we tend to superimpose our wisdom on the Lord. God, let me help you out here. I'm going to tell you really what's going on here as if the Almighty doesn't know. Now, God loves to work in the world of the impossible. Have you ever noticed that? I was reading a sermon on a different text, and here's what the preacher said. God created creation out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Something out of nothing. Abraham and Sarah did not have a child, and she was told she was going to have a baby when she was 80, 90 years old. We say that's impossible. God spoke through a donkey. We would say that's impossible. God parted the Red Sea. And the Israelites went through on dry ground. Immediately we think that's impossible. The sun, moon, and stars stopped in Joshua chapter 10. Not possible. God made an axe float. He raised children from the dead. He fed a crowd with very little food. He healed. He cured. With God, all things are possible. And yet we tend to have this mindset because we don't live in the world of the impossible or the supernatural that God can't. If you're facing an impossible problem right now, have you concluded that it's impossible, that nothing will ever happen? I saw this story of 
Preachers, their lives often tell more stories than their sermons. The First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, there was a very famous preacher. His name was George Truitt. He was a pastor there for 47 years, considered a legend, a celebrity in Southern Baptist life. Preceded W.A. Criswell, who was there for 50 years. Two pastors in 97 years at one church. George Truett was a very godly man. Many people were coming to Christ through his ministry. One day he was out hunting with his best friend and he accidentally shot him and killed him. A preacher killed his best friend. His daughter said it was such a a painful event in his life that he went into a deep, deep depression. In fact, she said she never heard him laugh again after that day. She never heard him laugh again because of the pain that was in his heart. George Truett had a radio program, and here's how he concluded his radio program. He said, be good to everybody because everybody's having a tough time. As he was carrying around the pain of what had happened in his life. The point is that everybody you meet has some kind of an impossible situation in their life right now. And the reason we don't give glory to God or give thanks is because we are so focused on the circumstance of the impossibility of the pain in our hearts. And we just carry it around hidden, secret, so nobody can see. We put on a smile, we wear nice clothes, everybody will say, how you doing? I'm doing fine. But inside, our heart aches, it grieves. And for that reason, we don't give glory to God and we don't give thanks. Everybody you see has an impossible situation. It was J. Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China, who said, there are three stages in any great work attempted for God. The first is a stage of impossible. The second is difficult. The third is done. God will lead you into the impossible that you will see his mighty power so that you can give him glory and give him thanks. That's how we know him better. When the angel visited Mary, she became... Uh, pregnant with child, excuse me, with Elizabeth. She was pregnant with child. The angel said, nothing is impossible with God. So let's just establish that truth before we go anywhere else tonight or this morning. Nothing's impossible with the Lord. We put, you know, limits on him, but nothing's impossible with God. And I would submit to you that our problems come from him so that we'll learn that truth. So what, where are you? Think of the impossible situation in your life right now. You might have probably been in it for years. Could be fresh, could be old, but you think about it all the time. That's how you know it's impossible. You just can't get rid of the thing. That is leading us to point number two. Here's the principle I want you to see. Remember, problems are invitations to pray. That problem has been placed in your life to invite you pray, to invite you to ask God to come into the situation. You can't fix it yourself. You can't ignore it forever. Stop blaming other people. Most folks will run from here to here to here to here. They're looking for God in all these different places. And God's saying, whoa, you're wasting a lot of time running around. I'm right here. I haven't gone anywhere. It's just that you're not coming to me. You think you're going to find me in all these different places. I'm there. I gave you the problem or allowed the problem to come into your life. The impossible situation is in your life, so you'll run to me. So so what does Daniel do? Look at verse 17. Daniel returned to his house after he found out about the death penalty, explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
First thing he did is he contacted prayer partners. Here's a fundamental principle of Christianity. Don't go through it alone. Where two or three are gathered, that's where the Lord is present. It's great to pray with your spouse, great to pray with your kiddos. But God wants us as a family to pray together. It was Billy Sunday, the great preacher, who said, He that is a stranger to prayer is a stranger to power. If you're a stranger to praying to God, you're going to be a stranger from the power of God. And what do you do when you pray? You plead for mercy. Look what it says in verse 18. He urged them to plead for mercy. He didn't say, hey, here's what we need to tell God to do. He didn't fill God in on all the details. Remember, Daniel was confident in the Lord. He had convictions in the Lord. He knew that God was in control. He knew he didn't need to tell what God to do. Just as the problem was impossible, the answer from the Lord was probably impossible for him to understand. Let's just go to the one that's in control of all things and plead for mercy. When's the last time you just pled for mercy? Not just for yourself, but for somebody else. Lord, their situation is so difficult. I ask for your mercy to be poured into their lives so they'll know you better. And you're asking for God's wisdom to come into the situation. God, I don't know what to do. You ever, you ever been like that in prayer? God, I have no idea what to do here. You know? I'm Jeff Morgan. I'm a pastor. I've been on this earth for a while. You know, I, I, I've been a pastor for a while. But there are certain situations that come up. I have no clue what to do. Those are situations where God says, now you've been called to prayer. The impossible situations are invitations to pray. So are you praying? All you're saying is, God, help. I don't know what to do here. Look at it from Daniel's perspective. God, I tried to honor you in chapter one. I didn't eat the food that the king wanted me to eat for 10 days. They said I was doing real well. I've been taken from my country. I'm in, I'm in exile in this land that's not even my home. I'm trying to please you and this angry king says I should die because I can't interpret the dream. I don't even know he had. Ain't fair, right? Is your situation not fair? Have you been given an impossible problem? It's an invitation to pray. Have you prayed about it? When you pray, God, I don't know what to do. I just ask for your help. I ask for your mercy. Please come into this situation because I can't figure it out and I sure can't fix it. careful. The longer you keep from praying, you might be staying in that situation a whole lot longer than you want to. God's doing it to get you to pray. It's a stubborn thing to pray, isn't it? We know what it is. We just won't do it. <laughs> Remember, we're going to give God glory and we're going to give God thanks. And the way he says to do that is to start praying. I love this story about a guy named Alan Rice. He was the pastor of the Crossfire United Methodist Church. I, I grew up in a United Methodist Church. You think you know pretty much about a, a Methodist church, right? But this church had a, a nickname. Its website said this is, quote, thebikerchurch.com. Bikerchurch.com. It's a church made up of 40 motorcycle riders. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, how would you like it if 40 guys on their motorcycles, rode down here with all their do-rags and all their leather and all that kind of stuff, we would probably have a first impression, would we not? I would dare say so. First of all, we tell them to get the motorcycles out of here, okay? 
They keep the motorcycles parked out there. What if they walked in here with their motorcycle gear on? What would you think? Pastor, we have us an impossible situation. That's what you probably think. But the unique thing about these guys is these 40 guys meet in a small country church to pray. Here's what they say. They haven't been church blinded to the power of God. That's what the pastor says. I like that phrase. They haven't been church blinded. Church hasn't blinded them from the power of God. They get requests, and these 40 guys, long hair, do-rags, and wallets with chains hanging by their sides come together, and they pray. They really pray, and they expect God to answer. You know, when you're looking at people, you kind of get a first impression. You make a conclusion pretty quickly. I remember the old saying, don't judge a book by its cover. This is a picture of what's going on here. I don't know about you, but I'd rather have somebody that doesn't look like I do praying for me than somebody that does look like me not praying for me. Amen? I want somebody praying for me. Let's go to point number three. In verse 19, we see during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And Daniel praised the God of heaven. <laughs> Don't you wish your prayers were answered that quick? We got to pray for mercy and boom, God reveals this dream to Daniel. And you're thinking, what a lucky guy. I wish God would answer my prayers that fast. Man, is it, is it an answer? If you go to the next chapter, God revealed in a dream to this king what's going on for a couple of thousand years. He talks about the Babylonian kingdom and the Medo-Persian kingdom and then the Greek kingdom and then the Roman, the Roman period. God gives them four successive leaders and kingdoms that are going to all in one dream. The thing I want you to see is that God knows and God's in control and God allowed the problem to come around to bring about his answer. And Daniel was trustworthy with the answer. And God gave him an answer. Now, what would you do if God gave you an answer to one of your long prayers? You've been waiting for a long time. You would just probably so be thankful for the answer for about five minutes and then go on to the next prayer request, right? It's like a Christmas present. We open it up and, yes, what's next? Remember, about prayer, it's the giver, not the gift, that's important. It's the one who answers, not the answer. That's important. God gave them impossible problems, so there's an invitation to prayer. Point number three, remember the importance of praise. What Daniel does, dear, is very instructive. These are some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 23. These verses tell us about our God. They're amazing. Before Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and gives him the answer to his dream. Now think about that. Yeah, I got a death penalty on me if I don't answer the king. But before I go and get my life spared, I'm going to stop and give praise to my God. Because he's the one that's my king. And he's the one that I serve. Praise be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. Remember that this election season. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank, now watch this. This is the glory and thanks. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. God took him through a problem, led him to prayer, gave him the answer to the problem, 
And his first response was not to go and blab the answer to the king, but to give praise, to give glory and thanks to his God. It's amazing. Look, at, there, there are five characteristics, what we call attributes of God in that text. He changes times and seasons. God knows the timing of everything. He knows how long your problem is going to last. He sets up kings and deposes them. God's going to put on the throne who he wants to put on the throne of each and every nation of this land, of the world. He gives wisdom, understanding. I I love the definition of wisdom that Robert Jeffress put, if you'll see it at the bottom of your outline. Wisdom is the ability to see life from God's point of view. Uh, This is pretty cool. He reveals deep and hidden things. God's in the mysteries. He allows the mysteries, those things that are hidden, to come to light in his time. You ever have a, a mystery come to light? Some are good, some not so much. But they will come to light. You think you can hide it, but you can't. God knows what's in the dark because he is the, the light. Wisdom is telling yourself, I ain't going to get away with this. <laughs> but I'm going to go ahead and ask the Lord to give me the right wisdom to make good decisions. I'll close with this. I know I've gone on for a while. I'll close with this. There's a little boy. I I was listening to David Jeremiah this week. I'm borrowing this sermon illustration from him. There's a little boy. He was reading a novel in his bedroom, and the mother said, Son, come here and do the dishes. He said, Mom, I can't, because right now I'm in chapter 6, and the villain has the hero down and out, and he's about to kill the hero, the good guy. Mom, I have to see how it turns out. Kind of like this story, Daniel chapter 2. She persisted as most mothers do. Son, it's time to do the dishes. Don't you love your mom? (laughs) So the, the young man very quickly turned to the back of the book. And he read it and discovered what happened. The villain died and the hero won. The boy goes back into the kitchen. He says, you know, Mom, the villain is doing well in chapter 6, but boy, is he ever in for a shock when he gets to the last page. The same is true in the impossible situations of life. The same is true of this world. Our God is in control of all things. And we might be in chapter 6, but we know how this story ends. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You and I are part of this story, if you will. But our job is not to get glory for ourselves. Our job is to give glory to him and to give thanks to him. For all men are like grass and our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. It's the word of the Lord that stands forever. Problems are invitations to prayer so that we might see the importance of praise. When's the last time you prayed? When's the last time you praised? That's the point of a problem, as Daniel so richly teaches us. If you go on, everybody benefits from this. And we're in the middle of a problem. We think God doesn't love us and God doesn't care about us. And it's hard, isn't it? Daniel's going from spiritually immature, though far more mature than us, to spiritually mature. When God takes us through these stages, he's taking us from spiritually immature 
the spiritually mature so that we, like my grandmother, will have backbones of steel for Jesus. Do you have a backbone of steel? Do you have confidence in the Lord? Do you have convictions in the Lord? Do you know that God's in control? For that, we give him glory and we give him thanks, even when we're in the midst of chapter six and we're not yet to the end of the story. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, pray, Lord, that you'll guide and lead us through this week. Lord, we are so grateful that you give us opportunities to learn and know you better. Father, there are problems that all of us are facing. Some perhaps came in here today saying, Lord, I don't have any hope on how this thing is going to be fixed. Their invitation is to pray. And Father, we may not pray it right. We just, we just ask for your mercy to be poured into this situation. Father, there may be someone here who knows somebody who has a marriage difficulty or uh, perhaps a child is astray or a friend has turned their back on you or they're in financial difficulty or perhaps a health crisis. Lord, we recognize the severity of such things and we don't make light of them, but we ask for your mercy to come into these situations. We ask for your mercy, your mercy, your mercy, because you are the one that can do the impossible. Forgive us when we're selfish and we don't give you glory and thanks. Today, as an act of our will, we give you glory and we give you thanks. For it's in your son's most precious and glorious name. Amen.